CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 4 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. Have you always wondered if the law of attraction is real? In this episode, we dig into the science behind visualization, manifesting, and much more to find out what really works and what doesn't. We share strategies for accessing your intuition and aligning your emotions, your intuition, and your rational thought process to supercharge your brain. We talk about beating imposter syndrome and much more with our guest, Dr. Tara Swart. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44. In our previous episode, we looked at how one of the greatest geniuses of all time lost his life savings overnight. We talked about despite our illusions of rationality, even the most brilliant humans are not rational at all. We tell ourselves that it's always the other person who's irrational, envious, and aggressive, and that it's never us. But science shows that all of our brains are remarkably similar, sculpted by evolution to have baked in biases and bad habits. No one is exempted from the laws of human nature. In our previous episode, we explored the path that all of the world's greatest strategists have used to master their own irrationality and achieve mastery with our legendary guest, Robert Greene. If you want to take control of your life, listen to our previous episode. Now for our interview with Tara. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show, Dr. Tara Swart. 
Tara is a neuroscientist and former psychiatric doctor. She's a senior lecturer at MIT Sloan and visiting senior lecturer at King's College London and an executive advisor to some of the world's most respected leaders in media and business. In 2016, she was named the world's first neuroscientist in residence at Corinthia Hotel London. She is the lead author of the award-winning Neuroscience for Leadership, co-author of An Attitude for Acting, and the author of the newly released book, The Source. Tara, welcome to The Science of Success. Thank you so much. And I'm actually loving the fact that the strapline of the book is The Secrets of the Universe, The Science of the Brain. So we're already aligned. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love some of the stuff you talk about in the book. And it's such an interesting, maybe even serendipitous time to interview you. You know, one of the things that's always been so fascinating and interesting for me, and I've I've read voraciously around kind of this intersection between science and spirituality. And your book, you're obviously a scientist, doctor, very rooted and and scientifically driven, evidence-focused. Tell me about how you came to write this book and how you started approaching merging those two ideas. Yeah, thank you. So I think, you know, that's what everybody sees on the surface, isn't it? That I'm a I'm an MD and I have a PhD in neuroscience. But I've always said, you know, I'm also a person and I have uh, things that I'm interested in. But to some extent, you do feel like you can't really talk about if you're a, an MD and a scientist, you know, for example, the spiritual side of things. So As I grew up in London with Indian parents, I felt a real sort of conflict between the life that I had at home and the life that I had at school and with my friends. And so I learned from an early age how to keep things separate. And then I went to medical school and studied neuroscience and became a doctor. Um, I was practicing in psychiatry for seven years. And spirituality doesn't really come into those things. So I would still do yoga sometimes, but I think that those things really drifted apart. When I changed career and started applying neuroscience to mental health and mental performance, those things naturally started to come back together. And so the idea for writing a book that really brought those things together was like a little sort of germinating seed in my mind for, I think, probably a couple of years, if not more. You know, I'll give you an example of the sort of things that you don't talk about. So quite a few years ago now, maybe five, seven years ago, I went on a yoga retreat in Ibiza and I had some Reiki. And when the book came out, the Reiki person contacted me on Instagram and said, you told me you were going to write this book, remember? And I didn't remember. So I think the idea had been there for a very long time, kind of deeply hidden in my brain. And you know, when the opportunity arose, to write it, I jumped at the chance and actually writing it really brought those two sides of my life together for me. Such a great way to start that journey. And I'm curious, getting into the specifics of it a little bit more, what did you find or how did you start to combine those two things? Because many people, and I certainly count myself in in some either previous iterations or even today in some ways, really struggled to combine or marry science and spirituality. How did you think about the disconnects, the distances, and how do you bridge that gap? Well, actually, because I am interested in things like the law of attraction and vision boards, I wanted to know if they could be backed up by cognitive science. I'd been doing them and learning about it at the same time. But what I hear from people who have read the book is that the science compels us to take action on things that we might think 
well, that's just a, you know, it's a new age thing or it's a spiritual thing. And so I had been doing vision boards for quite a few years, and we can talk about that later. But where I started was with the area that I was most skeptical about, which was the law of attraction. So I Googled it, and there's 12, but actually when you research it, there isn't really agreement about what the 12 are. So I had to start by sort of distilling it down to the 12 most acknowledged ones. And then I started looking into the science behind them. And immediately 10 of the 12, I could explain by neuroscience. And that's when I thought, okay, this is going to be really interesting. And I've been really honest in the book and said the one or two, I can't give you an explanation for how these work, but it's probably not going to harm you. And if you're doing the other 10, you may as well do them as well. Or if you want to leave them out, you can leave them out. So let's dig into that a little bit more. Tell me about what even is the law of attraction and why or how does the science support it? So there's many ways to describe it, but I think it's really summed up very nicely in this phrase, the way that we think determines our life. And that because of the way that you think, you attract certain things into your life. And wherever this has been written about before, it's been explained by quantum science and vibrations and field energy. And I think that's why it's received so much criticism. And it always struck me that if it's to do with the way you think, then it should be explained by psychology and neuroscience, because those are the sciences of thinking. And yeah, so I, I started looking into it. And the one that I have picked out as number one, and you know, because I think it's the most important one, is abundant thinking. And the science behind that is a term called loss aversion, which is the fact that our brain is geared for survival reasons to avoid loss more than it seeks reward. And this the psychological effect of this gearing is two to two and a half times stronger for loss avoidance than for gaining reward. So the easiest way to bring that to your mind is if you parked your car in the parking lot this morning and you walked to your office and you realized that you dropped $50 out of your pocket, you'd be really annoyed. You'd probably go back and check the parking lot a couple of times and you'd still be thinking about that for several hours, if not still thinking about it last thing at night before you go to sleep. But if instead of that, you walked from your car to the office and you found $50 lying on the ground in the parking lot, you would be you know, pleasantly surprised. You might keep it. You might give it to charity, but you wouldn't be thinking about that even an hour later. So the equivalent loss or gain, the loss has a more psychologically powerful effect. And so... That served us when we lived in the cave and it allowed us to survive as a species. But in the modern world, it's not as helpful. So in, you know, in a safe scenario, cultivating abundant thinking where you believe there's enough out there for everyone, you believe that good things will happen, you're generous because you don't feel like you're in competition for resources. Um, that's a way of thinking that actually changes what happens in the real world because it changes what you do. It changes who you hang out with. It changes the perspectives and filters that you have about how the world works. I want to come back to something you touched on a minute ago. I want to explore this more further, but you touched briefly on this notion of vibrations. And that's one that mm -hmm. as somebody who considers myself somewhat of a rational skeptic about many things, when I hear vibrations, it almost sets off alarm bells like, oh, this mm -hmm. can't be scientifically validated. This can't mm -hmm. be reason. It just seems a little bit too woo-woo for me. So how do you start to integrate that? into, you know, as somebody who comes out of the hard sciences, 
how do you integrate that into your perspective of things like the law of attraction, things like personal development, uh, et cetera? I mean, I, my first reaction is to say I don't. So I, I believe that the law of attraction and that your thought process should be explained by cognitive science, not by vibrational science, if you like. I put that in quote marks, being very skeptical. However, there are a few things like about social and emotional contagion that, you know, that feeling of when you go into a certain person's home or office that you just feel so drained and negative after spending time with them. There are some chemical and endocrine explanations for why that happens. So basically, if people are suppressing large amounts of stress and they've got high levels of cortisol, that can actually increase your cortisol levels, which then makes you feel stressed and negative. So there are some things like that. But I think basically that when I talk about the laws of attraction, when you know all the personal development exercises that I've included in the book, I don't talk about vibrations. Fair enough. And I think that that what you you made a really good point that underscores a lot of this, which you said earlier, though there might be some pieces of this that are not supported by science, a huge amount of it is really robustly supported and has not only evidence backing it in the science, but also really tangible results in the real world of positive outcomes that they've created for people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mentioned the vision boards and I've done them for about 10 years now and I've got great stories, you know, of my own about how the things on my vision boards have come true. And you hear these stories, but now um, that the book is out, I'm actually getting messages on Instagram from people I don't know. So, you know, when I hear the stories from my friends, I kind of think, yeah, yeah, I told you it would work. But when I get messages from strangers saying, you know, I arrived at this vacation destination and oh my goodness, look, the picture's exactly the same as what was on my board. Or I get messages from people saying my boyfriend proposed to me. You know, I've had messages about being engaged, being married, getting pregnant, going freelance, this, you know, travel stuff. They, they come up a lot. So it's, it's actually just making me believe it even more. So let's circle back to the notion of abundance thinking. How do we start to cultivate a mindset of abundance and what happens to us in our lives and our thinking patterns when we do? Mm. So I think the first step is to decide that that's what you want to do. And actually, I talk about a four-step process for any behavior change. And I make the analogy that anything you want to do, whether it's cultivating abundant thinking, whether it's mastering your emotions, whether it's accessing your intuition, it's exactly the same physiological process in the brain as learning a new language. So it starts with raising awareness, which is that basically asking yourself, is my life exactly how I always dreamed it would be? And if it's not, then would thinking in different ways potentially help me to achieve the life that I would like to have? And then once you're aware of what you need to do, and we'll use the example of abundant thinking, the next step is called focused attention. And it's about looking for opportunities where you could behave differently. So either looking back at the past or journaling now and saying, okay, so there was this you know, opportunity to travel for work, but I didn't take it because I thought that if I left the office, then you know, my team would manage fine without me and I'd basically not be needed anymore, that kind of thing. You start to notice where you're not doing it and you potentially could think differently. The third stage is deliberate practice. So it's committing to intentionally thinking abundantly, even if that's not your natural default. 
And there's an ancient Buddhist philosophy that says you should replace any negative thought with a positive thought immediately. And so I write about this in the book. It's, it's a Buddhist philosophy, but it's very much backed up by the science of neuroplasticity, which is how the brain changes, either itself or in response to things that we expose it to. And so every time we recall a thought or a memory or we you know, have this narrative in our mind about something negative, it reinforces the neural pathway that supports that thought. As soon as you start thinking, oh, I'd never be able to start up my own business, you immediately replace that with one day I'll, I'll start up my own business. You're reducing the number of negative thoughts and overwriting them with a new positive thought. So the way that neuroplasticity works or brain pathways develop or wither with disuse, you can't really undo something that's already a pathway in the brain. So you need to overwrite it with the new desired behavior. And the final key to this whole process is about accountability. So, you know, if you said after this podcast, I'd like to think more abundantly, but then you didn't really do much about it. And I caught up with you in six months time and you said, oh yeah, I tried for a few weeks and then life got in the way. That's basically because you're missing the key part of accountability. So you would either make a commitment to me or a friend or write it, you know, write it in your journal, but a bit more than that, you know, make a commitment so that you're held accountable or use technology. I, I like this app called Habit Share. And I have at any one time 10 habits that I'm trying to cultivate. And I share, you know, I shared the exercise one with a colleague. I keep some of them private. You can share some of them with family. So you can use technology to hold yourself accountable. But I always feel that, for example, with my coaching clients, they know that in a month's time, I'm going to come back and say, did you do that thing that we talked about? And that they're much more likely to do it because they know that I'm going to ask. That's a really important point about having accountability because it's such a great way to create adherence to any new behavior pattern. But I want to, I want to circle back and dig in a little bit deeper around this idea of neuroplasticity. I think it's such a critical strategy. I have two questions which are interrelated. One is what would you say to somebody who either can't or feels like they can't dislodge a negative thought from their head and it keeps repeating itself, keeps pinging around in there. And the second thing, which is a corollary of that is how do you start to, at a very practical and implementable level in your life, start to actually proactively use the science of neuroplasticity to overwrite thoughts and behavior patterns and, and brain infrastructure that you want to change? Okay. You, you might have to remind me of the second part of the question again, because I have quite a lot to say about the first part. So actually, um, just going a little bit back to what we were saying before about replacing a negative thought with a positive one, what I encourage people to do is that if you have a repetitive negative thought or a theme to your negative narrative, then you, sh you try to distill it down to the basic underlying belief that drives that negative thought. And then what you do is you create an opposite statement and then you use that as your positive affirmation or your mantra, you know, whichever word you like to use. So, you know, again, the sort of struggle between the spiritual word and the more scientific word. So, you know, a lot of people say, think I can't do something or other or that will never happen for me. And you simply change it to I can do X or one day that will happen for me. And I ask people to really use their own words and their own voice, something that's going to you know, resonate with them. So it's, it's quite difficult to choose that for someone. I sometimes make suggestions, but it's really important that the, you go away and think about it 
and think, okay, what's really underneath all of this? And then create your personal statement that opposes that. And it really is a case of immediately, you know, replacing the thought. And I used to have a list in my journal of sort of things that I'd accomplished or compliments that I'd been given, you know, things that I was proud of in my career. So that if I started having negative thoughts, I could immediately go to the journal and they were already there because sometimes once you get into a spiral, it's, it's very difficult to reverse it. So I started off like that and then it became a habit for me and I didn't have to go to the written down statements anymore. And actually I have a few examples of that for myself. So I think we all have, you know, these negative thoughts and they've probably been there since we were children. And that's why they're so entrenched because they've been there for so long. They've been repeated so many times. And so it's repetition and emotional intensity that embeds thoughts and behaviors more. And so when I wrote my PhD, it was it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I actually, it's the only time in my life I've wanted to give up at something. And my PhD professor, I mean, I have a lot of love for the guy, but his management style was basically to say, if you don't get on with this, then you're going to be seen as a failure for the rest of your life. So it's not very motivational. So that was, you know, there are lots of negative emotions associated for me with that time. And so when I met Andrew, who I co-wrote An Attitude for Acting with, we were actually going to do some workshops with that name. But I said to him, that sounds like a book title. And he said, let's write a book. And I sort of thought, oh, no, I, you know, I don't like writing. I'm not good at it. I don't want to do it. But he came back the next day with 12 chapter headings. And I really liked him and I really wanted to work with him. So I did it. But it basically, I practically had PTSD from because it reminded me of, of writing up my PhD. So I definitely at that point said, I'm never going to write a book again. And then Paul Brown, who I wrote Neuroscience for Leadership with, suggested that we write 12 short sort of blogs, basically, and then make them into a book. So I kind of fell into that without thinking about it too much. But in both those cases, because I really liked the person and I didn't want I wouldn't let them down, I managed to complete the writing, but I found it very difficult and stressful. So again, I said, I'll never write a book again. And then, you know, the opportunity to write about science and spirituality was just too tempting for me. And of course, I knew that I had this secret fear deep down that I couldn't write a book by myself. And so it got to the point where I kind of wanted to prove to myself that I could. And the book came out in the UK about six months ago, and it was immediately a UK bestseller. It actually in the first week was um, ranked just above the secret in the nonfiction hardback chart. So that was, you know, a sort of exciting moment. My publisher actually said you couldn't make this up. So it was a really positive experience. And one morning, a few months after that, I was doing my makeup in the mirror in my bathroom. And I was obviously having a little story going around in my head. And I thought, yes, because I'm not a writer. I actually had to, it was good I was in front of a mirror because I stopped. I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, Tara, Neuroscience for Leadership is an award-winning book. The source is a bestseller. You are a writer. And, you know, so I, I sort of, I came to that. And now whenever that thought creeps in, I just laugh about it because I have that little story. And, I, you know, I have, it relates to imposter syndrome, which I think so many people have because I've blogged about that and got just so many emails from people saying they really resonated with it. And, you know, one of my things is that I don't look like a typical MIT professor. And so, you know, this was a thought at the back of my mind. And one day I flew into San Francisco airport because I was giving a guest lecture at Stanford. 
And the immigration officer asked me what business I was coming into the country on. So I said, um, associate professor at Stanford. But I'd just flown from London overnight. I was wearing a hoodie and sneakers and had my hair scraped up. And he actually looked at me and said, you're a professor at Stanford. And so I had this moment where I thought, yeah, I know I don't look like one. But then I thought, no, 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 I do this to myself all the time. I'm I'm not going to let somebody reinforce that thought. So I said, yeah, I am. And he asked me, you know, what I teach. And I said, neuroscience. And he said, okay, then. But it was, I think sometimes maybe because both of those stories end with humor that's changed it for me. So I think when we laugh about something, we release that bonding hormone oxytocin. And that actually does it trumps unconscious and conscious biases, for example, we know that. So I think for me, I had a bias. And when I laughed about it, it kind of dissolved away. That's a great point about using oxytocin to potentially re-encode some of those memories or experiences or beliefs. I want to, there's so many themes from the source I want to explore, but before we do, you touched on something that is such a great topic and I'd love to hear you extrapolate on it a little bit. Tell me more about imposter syndrome and how people can overcome it. Mm. I've just realized as well that we didn't really go into the neuroplasticity second part of the question, but we will. I'll try to weave them in together. So imposter syndrome is the feeling that you feel, you know, you feel like a bit of a fraud. You feel like you'll be found out. It often happens because people get promoted on their technical skills, but either aren't taught the managerial or leadership skills that they need, or, you know, they just don't have the experience or take to it naturally. So, you know, neuroplasticity is actually relevant here in terms of either learning the behaviors that you need formally or just practicing them over and over again until you feel that it's it's more natural for you to, to behave as a leader. And I want to say that when I first blogged about imposter syndrome, it was because the person that, that said to me, one day someone's going to come into this corner office and tell me that I should never have been here, was a hedge fund billionaire. And that was the last per, uh, a male. And I just thought you are the stereotype of the last person that anybody would ever think has imposter syndrome. And I have to say that when he said it, yeah, I was kind of thinking, okay, you know, w- what exercises can I do with him or how can I explain it to him to like help him move through this? But there was definitely a part of me that thought, thank goodness, I'm not the only person that feels like that. And that's why I started asking all my clients, every industry, every age and gender, every continent of the world, if they ever experienced it. And I don't think there's been anybody that said no. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I know that I've personally experienced imposter syndrome many times in my life. I remember when I was, uh, when I was first hired at Goldman Sachs and I was a young analyst and I was in the training class, I, I felt like a total imposter. And uh, it's amazing how universal an experience it is. Mm. What are some of the strategies or solutions for dealing with it? So one of them actually is what we talked about earlier, which is creating a you know a positive statement that you use when you get those feelings. Other ones are in journaling to, like I said before, actually as well, you know, have a list of things that you've accomplished, golden moments in your career, things you're proud of in your life. So you know that's just reinforcing through writing and through what you think and what you say that it's that this fear or this uncertainty is not founded in a fact. If it is founded in a fact, if it is, I've never been trained to manage people. You know, I'm good at being an analyst, but I've never been trained to manage people. Then to go and get the training, go and read or get the formal training, whatever it is that you need to feel, you know, to get over that feeling of 
I shouldn't be here or I can't do this. I think, you know, the reason that I, so I've, I've actually wrote, subsequently written about it again, because I think it's so important for people to realize that pretty much everybody has it. I think that normalizes it and it reduces that the fear about it as well, because then, you know, it's not just you because all of us think it's just us. And this makes you realize that it's not. What I think is interesting is that people, you know, often in my class at MIT or just when I'm, you know, giving a, a talk somewhere, quote this statistic that women experience imposter syndrome more than men. Now, I have to say that my case studies are biased by the fact that about 90% of the people I coach are men simply because that's a reflection of who's at the level that I tend to coach. So, you know, I can't say whether it's more in, in women or not, but I can say that there are an awful lot of men out there that you wouldn't think have it. But they- Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. They do. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire. 
because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. I want to come back to some of the other themes we've talked about earlier Tell me a little bit more about visualization because that's something that I've seen a lot of contradictory science on, both saying that visualization is good, it empowers you, and also that it can even disempower you or make you feel like you've already achieved your goals and demotivate you. So what does the science say around visualization and what are some of the most effective strategies for visualization? I haven't heard those negative ones before, actually. So, I mean, it made me smile, the last one, about it makes you feel like you've already achieved your goals and demotivates you. Because what I say is that visualizing something makes it less threatening for the brain because in the brain, anything new or any uncertainty is is very threatening. And so if you visualize going to an important meeting or an interview, then to some extent, it prepares your brain by making it feel like it's not a completely unknown scenario. However, I don't have any evidence to show that visualizing success makes you feel like you've already achieved everything. That would probably be taking things a little bit too far. However, I will say that um, one of the studies I quote in the book is that in three groups of people, a control group, and then a group that lifted certain numbers of weights and repeated it a certain number of times over the time period of the study, compared to the group that just visualized lifting the same weights for the same time period. But the increase in muscle mass for the actual group was 30 something percent. And the increase in muscle mass for the visualization group was 12 to 15 percent. So it's quite, it's not the same, but it's quite stunning that it has any effect at all. So visualization, I think of it as three things. It's an umbrella that three main things fall under. So one is actually creating a vision board, which by science, I call it an action board because it, it's a collage that you create with metaphorical representations of what you would like your life to look like or what you would you know, like to achieve in, in your life. But it has to be backed up by actions. So can't, you can't just make the board and look at it and hope that everything comes true. If you make the board and you look at it regularly you, and you visualize it coming true and you do something every day to move yourself closer to those goals then it's much more likely that some things or everything on it will will eventually come become real. And the reason for that is that because we're bombarded with so much information all the time, everything we see, everything we hear, everyone we meet, you know, all the things on our mind, the brain naturally filters out things that aren't deemed relevant to our success or reaching our goals. So there's selective filtering of the data that we're bombarded with. And then there's selective attention to the things that are the most important. And there's another concept in the brain called value tagging, which is that everything that's prioritized is tagged in order of importance. So actually, when you make a vision board and you look at it regularly and you visualize the success, you are priming your brain with those images more at the front of your mind to potentially grasp opportunities that might otherwise have passed you by because you're busy doing the day job, you're busy looking after the kids, you you know it's not urgent enough to 
try to start your own business or try, you know, redecorate your home or go traveling. So you sort of, you know that you want it, but it gets keeps getting pushed to the bottom of the list. But the visual um, priming has a very strong effect in the brain in terms of raising it up that list of what's tagged as important. Did you ever play Tetris when you were a kid? Yeah, for sure. So do you remember that if you played it last thing at night, that when you closed your eyes to go to sleep, you would see the little blocks falling down in front of your eyes? Of course. Yeah, I've had that experience with several different games. Yeah. So it's actually, it's a psychological phenomenon called the Tetris effect. And and that's why I recommend either looking at your vision board or doing your visualization last thing at night, because the state of consciousness that's associated with going from being awake to falling asleep, the hypnagogic state is where your subconscious is most suggestible. So that works. And then I don't know if you would categorize this under visualization, but to me, it's part of it. And it's about the dramatic effect of the brain on the body. And my favorite study on that is three groups of people in their 80s. One group, the control group, were asked to live normally for a week. One group were asked to reminisce about what it was like to be in your 60s. And one group were actually moved into homes that looked like their home did 20 years ago. And they had their visual aids and their mobility aids taken away for a week. And they had photos of themselves when they were in their 60s in the in the place that they lived for a week. And the group that lived like that, they had improved visual acuity and musculoskeletal coordination after a week. And the reminiscing group had some improvements, but not as much. And so just to tie this all up to everything that we've been speaking about, neuroplasticity is the ability to to change your brain. And so if you know that what you think and how you live and what you see can actually change physical things in your body, then you're going to be much more careful about what you look at and who you talk to and how you behave. And so just a really small story, but just an example, because you asked for examples of how people can use neuroplasticity, is that when I went for my annual eye checkup when I was turning 40, the optician said, you know, you look younger than 40, but you are 40. And so you're going to need reading glasses soon. You could take them now or you might be able to manage for another year. And I immediately thought reading glasses to me is associated with being old. So I don't want them. So I said, no, I, I don't want them. And I'm, I'm not going to have them next year either. And he said, well, we'll see. So all I did was say no to that. And then whenever I needed to look at my phone or read a book, and I felt like it would be a bit easier if I moved it further away, I just didn't do that. So that's what I did for a year. When I came back for my test, he said, how have you been? And I said, fine. And he said, well, you know, we'll see the numbers on your test. Halfway through the test, he spun around in his chair and said, what have you been doing? Because, and and I said, why, is it still the same? And he said, no, it's better than last year. And so I told him and he said, I said, you know, I did a neuroplasticity experiment on myself. And he, he said, okay, that's great. Obviously, you haven't actually done that much. So I think you'll probably need them next year. And it's now six years later, and I still don't need them. So for me, knowing how the brain works has made me able to make that choice and actually make something different in the real world because of it. And that's why I wrote the book, because with what I know about neuroplasticity and brain agility, I just thought everybody needs to know this. That's a fascinating story. And I'm very curious about it. 
how tell me a little bit more about the I, I understand how neuroplasticity works, but tell me about how the brain mechanism of either the belief of refusing to to mm-hmm. that you would need glasses or the actual activity of looking at things. Tell me how that specifically interacted with neuroplasticity to create the brain state or the the physical changes in your brain so that you wouldn't need to wear reading glasses. Mm-hmm. So it's based on the fact that we have these unconscious primers in our brain that dictate what goes on in our body through the interaction of nerves and hormones, so the neuroendocrine system. And for example, a study that was done on Harvard medical students, so young, healthy, smart people, they were asked to walk between five rooms And in the rooms, there were pieces of paper on a table that they had to string a sentence out of. And they thought that was the whole experiment. But one of the rooms had the words Florida, bungalow, walk, sunshine, beach. And these associations prime us to think about retirement. And no matter what order they entered the rooms, 85% of the students walked out of that room more slowly than the other rooms because they'd thought about retirement and that slowed them down. So I think being aware of the fact that what you say and what you do changes your body, you know, changes your physiology is the start. And it really brings us back to the four-step process that I talked about earlier, the being aware, the focusing attention, the deliberate practice and the accountability. So if we take that backwards, I I know that I'm going to have an eye test every year. I deliberately didn't change my behavior to accommodate my worsening vision. And, you know, I I focused attention on the things that I I needed to do or not do to, to allow that to happen. So basically, with that intention and those actions, the brain pathways that would have got lazier and lazier, especially if I took the glasses and then, you know, just could read without even thinking about it. Actually, physiologically, I would say that I, you know, I don't think I grew any new neurons, but I think that I made connections between neurons that already exist, maybe myelinated some of the pathways to make that, that optic nerve pathway more efficient or, or at least remain robust. It's so fascinating. It's such a great example. I don't want to waste too much more time on it, but I'm, I'm just quite curious about it. Frankly, I wear glasses and have a really bad prescription. So I'm just trying to reverse engineer if I could apply that in some way. But what about this is the last quick thing that I'll ask about this. Isn't the eye itself to some degree, the lens, the shape of the eye, I mean, those are all things that are outside of the scope of neuroplasticity, right? So if your eye lens is changing, you can't really do much about that just by thinking about it. I agree. And I think this example is really just an analogy for other things that we can change. So for example, if we talk about brain agility, there are uh, there are six things in the model that I describe, which are mastering your emotions, trusting your intuition, understanding your brain body connection, making good decisions, staying motivated and resilient to reach your goals, and creating the real world outcomes that you desire. Those are all things that are pathways in the brain that you can do something about. And that's, I think, more important than necessarily not getting reading glasses. Yes, that's right. Okay, perfect. So let's dig into that a little bit. Tell me about intuition. I'm very curious, how do we access our intuition and how do we align our intuition with our emotions, with our rational thought Mm. to create even more powerful brains? That's a really good question because they don't always align, do they? So that's the issue. I have found journaling to be the single best way of 
raising my awareness about my intuition and the decisions that I make based on intuition and the decisions that I make based on logic. So obviously, if they naturally align, that's no problem. If they don't, and this comes up quite a lot in like fire and hire situations or, well, I'll stick with fire. I was going to say in relationships as well. I mean, well, no, I'll talk about both because the hire and fire situation is that if you've got, you know, similar resumes, similar qualifications and experience, sometimes you just get that gut feeling that this is the right person to choose. And you must always double check that through your logical system or with somebody else. But intuition is basically because we can't remember everything that we've experienced in our life, but it's the wisdom and life experiences that we've picked up, which are stored in our nervous system. And so it's accessing those. And what I find is reading back over the journal and seeing the times that I've said, oh, you know, I don't think this is working. I think I need to change what I'm doing. But then, you know, you don't do it and a few more months pass. And then you look back and you either see I'm in the same position I was in six months ago and I haven't done anything differently, but I'm expecting a different outcome or you or and or you see that you see the real positivity and benefit of the times that you have listened to your intuition. So the reason I said there's something else that's a bit more contentious, but I have so many cases of people saying, I know I need to leave this relationship, but I don't want to be single again or you know, I don't know if I'll find somebody better or time's running out and I want to have a family. And every single time that nagging doubt has started, it's ended at some point down the line. But then if you'd listened to your intuition, you probably could have done that quicker. And obviously you learn through mistakes or near misses as well. And that adds to your intuition. So everything probably comes out in the wash at the end of the day. But Repeating the same mistakes is something you can avoid by listening to your intuition. And I was going to say one other thing. Sorry, it's it's left me. It's all good. Yeah, that's a great point about journaling. It's such a powerful strategy. And you make a really good connection that journaling is how we can align our rational thinking with our intuition and with our emotions. Exactly. I've remembered what I wanted to say. Can I can I add it on? Because it's part Please, of the answer. Yeah. Add it. <laughs> Thank you. So what we know about how memories or information get stored in the brain is that in the outer cortex we have what's called our working memory, which is everything we need to do to do our job and live our life. Deeper in the limbic system, we have the habits and behavior patterns that we've picked up over life. And since we we've been able to scan brains and bodies we've seen that there's a large neuronal connection between the gut neurons and the limbic part of the brain. So this is believed to underlie intuition. And what's absolutely fascinating is that if you take a good quality probiotic, which improves your gut bacteria or the diversity of your gut bacteria, if you take a good quality one for a month, you get less negative thinking. And so actually the health of your gut physically also clouds or contributes to your intuition. There's a three-way connection between the gut bacteria themselves, the neurons in the gut, and the brain. And so the gut neurons in the brain communicate through the neural pathways. The gut bacteria, through cytokine transmission, which is chemical signaling through the blood, signal to the gut neurons and to the brain separately. So if you've been stressed, you've taken antibiotics, you've drunk alcohol, then your gut bacteria becomes depleted. So either the quality or the quantity goes down or both. If you 
eat prebiotic foods like onions, garlic, artichokes, if you eat fermented foods and you take probiotics, especially when you travel, and depending on the strain that you take, it can actually contribute to improving mental health, mental performance, and trusting your intuition. Such a great point about gut health and probiotics. I think we're going to see some tremendous strides in that field in science and research and action around that in the coming years. I want to jump around a little bit. There's a couple other concepts that I found really fascinating that I want to touch on. One of them that you talk about is the importance of the concept of metacognition. Can you talk about what that is and why it's so important? Mm -hmm. Metacognition is basically thinking about your thinking. And because, you know, this sort of age old phrase, I think, therefore I am, we completely align ourselves with our thoughts. Every, we think that everything we think is true, basically. <laughs> but then there's the whole element of we don't know what we don't know. And so metacognition is basically about stepping back and asking yourself, are your thought processes healthy? Is there something that you believe that is a barrier to your success? Could you reframe the way that you think? Could somebody else's point of view actually be helpful or better for you? Because of the way our brain develops from the womb and through childhood, the things that have been there for the longest are the ones that we're the least aware of. So these you know, automatic reactions that we have to things, the thoughts that we have over and over again, they're so much part of who we are that we can't separate ourselves from them. And so it's just a really good practice. And there are, you know, there are some exercises in the book and out there about just stepping back and actually looking at your thinking and looking at, you know, and starting afresh, what's working, what's not. And there are many exercises in the book to exactly to help you reframe your thinking based on the understanding of that metacognition is an important thing to do. I want to just really briefly check in. I know we're coming up on the hour. Do you have a hard stop or do you have the ability to go just like one or two minutes over? Yeah, I can go one or two minutes over. Okay, perfect. I would love it if you could give me an example of one of those concrete exercises that someone could use to improve metacognition or to reframe their thinking. Mm -hmm. Okay, there are several, but one's really jumping to mind. It's a three-column exercise. I have a couple of three-column exercises in the book, and it's about cultivating abundant thinking, so kind of come full circle. And so you start by making an ideal statement. So, you know, something that you would like to have in your life, something you would like to do. And you know, it could be anything like start my own business or, you know, have a balanced life, something like that. And in the first column, you write down every single barrier to you being able to achieve that statement. And, you know, when I work with people to do it, I really encourage them to think of more, to dig deeper, to keep coming up with the reasons, because it works best if you pretty much manage to come up with every single barrier that you believe exists between you and this ideal outcome. Then in the sex, so it can be usually it's things like I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. There are things that I can't control. There are other people involved and, you know, so on and so on. And then in the second column, you write the opposite statement to all of the barriers, even if they couldn't possibly be true. So you might say I have unlimited resources I spend 24 hours a day on this. You know, I control the final outcome. I'm not dependent on other people for what I need to get done. And then once you've done an opposite statement for every single barrier, in the third column, you write as if the second column is now true, 
you write what I do differently now that I have unlimited resources, I have total control over the situation, I'm not dependent on anyone else. And it's the wording is very important. It's not what I would do. It's what I do now that this is true. And you tend to get some repeat answers here from, you know, so if the opposite statements can lead to some of the same things that you actually do in, in the real world. And I get people to put those answers into themes. And usually, I'm not going to say half, but close to half of them are things that you could already do differently. And so you basically reframed your thinking, you found some things that you could actually do already that would move you towards that goal. And you basically have to start doing them. I want to clarify one thing really quickly. You said a really important point, which is this idea that it's not what you would do differently. It's frame that again, because I, I wasn't sure I fully understood it or, or heard it correctly. And I think it's a really important piece. In column three, what are you writing? You're writing what I do differently now that I fully believe that column two is true. So for example, if you said, well, you know, I can't do it because I don't have enough money and you write in column two, I have unlimited financial resources for this project. Then you write down, okay, now that I've got unlimited financial resources, what will I actually do? Got it. That totally makes sense. Not what you do. Yeah, it's a subtle difference. I mean, I'm sure it also works if you say what I would do, but that's putting it into the future and it's, it's creating an area of separation between you now and being able to do that thing. So I specifically get people to say what I do now that column two is true. And very often, you know, there are almost half the things are things that you could already do. And then the other ones might take you acting on the first half to allow the other ones to be doable in the future. That's a fantastic exercise. Thank you so much for sharing it. And I think that'll really be able to create some instant kind of breakthroughs for, for the listeners. Mm. So you may have just answered it with that, or you might have a different answer. But for somebody who's listening to this, what would be one action step or piece of homework that you would give them to implement some of the themes or ideas that we've talked about today in their lives starting right away based on what we've talked about today? Oh, I, I know the answer to that immediately. And that is to create an action board. And tell me in 30 seconds, how would you go about creating an action board? So if you want to do it old school, then you get a stack of magazines from various genres like travel, lifestyle, fitness, and you have an idea of what you want in your life, obviously, and you look for images that match that. But as you leaf through the magazines, you also, if you get, feel very struck by a certain image, but you can't explain why, then you cut that image out too. Then you place the images on the board and the whole board is important. So if you want a full life, then the board, you know, will be quite cluttered. If you want to have space and you want things, you know, balanced and in their own little niche, then you would you know, have things in sections, you'd have space between them. So even things like whether the images are touching each other or not can be important. I advise people not to use words, because that tracks more to the logical pathways and the visual and creative and emotive pathways. Uh, but you can use numbers because a lot of people put the amount of money that they'd like to earn on the board. And then you either keep it in a prominent position or take a photograph of it and look at it regularly. Sometimes the images that are things that you know you want, they just don't feel right on the board. So you, you should get rid of them because we're trying, you know, it's, it's accessing intuition. And then sometimes images that you didn't know you wanted might really just feel right on the board. So you'd include them. You can do this using, you know, digitally instead of actually creating the collage by hand. But 
there's something about that whole tactile color you know sort of process that I think contributes to it really having said that this year my one is actually done digitally because I couldn't find the images that I thought I wanted but for a good seven years I would make them like that and like I said it's an action board not just a vision board because you also do the visualization and you do things you look out for opportunities to do things that will move you closer to those goals and at what cadence do you typically recreate your action boards I do mine annually so I do mine in December for the next year but there's no rule about that. You can do it on your birthday. You can do it at the start of the school year. To be honest, the best time to do it is now. And from a goal standpoint, are these goals for the next year or are these lifetime goals? It can be both. I just, I feel like, you know, I like to leave a bit of room for magic. So lifetime just seems very far away and very big. And so many things could change in the meantime, but mine tends to be annual. Sometimes it takes 18 months for everything on the board to materialize. So it may be that you you can reuse some of it or you can like overlay some of it. I think it feels more approachable if you start off with a shorter term goal, but then if it's totally people's choice, if they want to do one for their whole life. Awesome. Well, Tara, where can listeners find you, all of your work and the book online? Oh, thank you. So my website, taraswart.com has a book page on it and it's got several retailers on there online and bookstores throughout the US. Obviously the book can be found on Amazon. I'm very active on social media. So I'm Dr. Tara Swart on Instagram, Dr. Tara Swart. I'm Tara Swart on Twitter and I regularly blog through my Forbes leadership channel. Well, Tara, thank you so much for coming on the show, for sharing all this wisdom and some really great practical action steps and ways to implement all of these fascinating ideas. Thank you so much. It's been a really fun conversation. And I'm, I feel like you, know, you led me down the path of making it very practical and actionable for your listeners. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. 
Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.